Hi, I'm Josh Chang, your host, and you're listening to the Precision Guided Podcast, Georgetown Security Studies Review's official podcast covering all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Thanks again to our listeners for joining us on our latest episode. Today on the pod, I've got Emma Joen and Dr. Kylie Ann Hunter. Emma Joen is a second year MA candidate in the Security Studies program. She's the associate editor for Gender and IR at the Georgetown Security Studies Review. Originally from France, she did her undergraduate studies at King's College London in European Studies in Spanish, where she focused her studies on migration and security before moving to Jordan to learn Arabic for a year. Her research interests include power dynamics and security, radicalization, technology, gender, and migration. Next, we have Dr. Kylie Ann Hunter, who's an adjunct professor of security studies at Georgetown University and an incoming professor of military and strategic studies at the United States Air Force Academy. She's a senior adjunct fellow at the Center for New American Security and a non-resident fellow at the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Creativity at Marine Corps University. Dr. Hunter's research focuses on the intersection of gender, identity, personnel policy, and military effectiveness with a special emphasis on Western militaries and unconventional warfare. Her work has been published in numerous outlets, and she's even been featured on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, NPR, and many other outlets. Dr. Hunter is also a Marine Corps combat veteran, serving multiple tours as an AH-1W Super Cobra attack pilot, and completing her time in the Marine Corps as a legislative liaison officer to the House of Representatives. Emma and Dr. Hunter, thanks again for joining us on the pod today. We're glad to have you here. Thank you so much for having us. Really excited to be here. Yes, thank you very much, Josh. Yep, so for our listeners on the pod today, today will be a very unique episode in the sense that for the first time, Precision Guided Podcast will be going over a paper of study conducted by Dr. Hunter and Emma. And from what I understand, the paper deals with the use of online misogyny as a form of uh, disinformation warfare, is that correct? Yes, that, that is correct. And uh, what's super exciting for me about this is this paper actually grew out of a final project that Emma did in my class last semester, where she was looking at radicalization and traditional gender norms. And as I was reading through it, I, I recognize a lot of the themes that um, I'll have her talk about, you know, really about online radicalization of insurgents of these terrorist groups, some of these exact same things are things that we see that actually hinder military recruitment. The exact same types of language, the forums that people are, are a part of. And I hadn't seen anywhere a really a, a combination like this. Um, and also naming this as not just a terrorist problem, not just a recruitment problem. These are things that tend to be looked at as, as, as desperate entities really naming the root source of the problem as online misogyny and, and getting to the root of it and looking at just how expansive of a security threat this really is. Interesting. And uh, Emma, since uh, Dr. Hunter mentioned that you spearheaded some of this project, uh, so what interested you in this particular topic? Uh, could you walk our listeners through the origins of the project, uh, what your pro thought process was as you uh, conducted the research? Of course. Um... So as Dr. Hunter said previously, it all really started in that gender and war uh, class where we had to do a, a final research paper. And I had, it's been a couple of years now that I've become interested in the dynamics of radicalization and which 
different techniques um, extremist and terrorist groups use in order to, to get people to join the movement. And so throughout this research, I had done a bit of literature review in the past and, and in this class on gender and, and the, the necessity to have a gender lens in security, it made me think, um, should I look into traditional gender norms as a form of, of recruitment tool uh, used by, by terrorist groups? And, and so I did a lot of research and obviously you had more, you have more and more research being published at the moment on, for example, the fact that ISIS is, is trying to target women in particular, or, but a lot of the focus was done on, on women and men as a very like gender essential, essentialist way of understanding men and women. So I wanted to, to really look into the, the gender norms, the idea of what a good woman is, a good man is, and the difference it had um, between different cultures. And so the reason, so to, to kind of support my argument, I decided to use two case studies, um, the INSAL movement uh, and ISIS, uh, because I thought they were very interesting as being, as having nothing in common in appearance, uh, as ISIS is, is has been, as a historical heritage of violence and extremism, whereas the Insel movement is way, way more recent. And ISIS is an extremist religious organization, whereas the Insel community is more an ideology based on loneliness and a lack of sexual activity. So those, those were very different um, examples that I wanted to compare to see if we, we saw the, the salience of traditional gender norms. Yeah, that's really interesting that you brought up the incel movement and ISIS. Um, and based on my limited knowledge, it seems like both are very different, distinct movements. But it's interesting that you found this convergence about, um, I guess, the use of online misogyny and gender norms with these two movements. Uh, so Emma and Dr. Hunter, as you, as you wrote this paper and researched these two movements, uh, what were sort of the major findings or interesting observations that uh, you both were able to make as you conducted the research? I think one of the things that's the most interesting is the, the stickiness of traditional gender norms, even in the face of a, a ever-changing society. I think, you know, if you look at, you know, as you mentioned, ISIS and the Intel movement, they are really a, a perfectly classical, most different research design where you go down the list for a lot of things and they're super different. But this common thread is this attachment and appeal to traditional gender norms. And then I think you you extend that into the recruit you know, the military recruitment side and you see misogyny through the lens of traditional gender norms again is actually harming the US's ability to recruit and retain a strong force. And so I think one of the, the things that I found you know, really key to this is just how sticky those norms are, how how they transcend these different populations. And then I think the, the other thing that's really interesting is how, you know, how the internet has created such a strong echo chamber for this to actually exist. You know, and I think that if, if you looked pre-internet world, we wouldn't, we wouldn't see these problems really, because you'd have these sort of isolated individuals or small groups of people who might hold these beliefs, but there's no way to amplify them. And without amplification, they're, they're really not that much of a threat or dangerous. You know, you can, you can hold to bad beliefs, but they're kind of kept to yourself. And I think that has 
resulted in a understudy and an underappreciation of just how prominent these beliefs are and how dangerous they are because they kind of get dismissed as it's like, oh, it's boys will be boys. It's not that bad. It's just one person's opinion. But the internet has created a really strong echo chamber, uh, which has been dubbed the manosphere, actually of this place where these, these norms percolate. And, and we see both externally, you know, it creates groups like ISIS and intel movements, which have direct attacks, you know, which can conduct direct violent attacks, but also this internal threat, you know, where we can't recruit and retain the talent that, that, that we need coming at it. And so I think just how sticky that is, is super interesting. Gotcha. Yeah. Emma, what, what were your observations on this, on this point? Yeah, I think to, to jump off what Dr. Hunter was saying, um, for me, it was definitely re I, I wanted to make sure that we could we could draw the causal effect between online and real life. Mm -hmm. uh, because very often the argument gets dismissed because people say, oh, it's only it's not because you watch violent movies or you play violent video games that you're going to be a violent person in real life. And that's an argu argument that is very often used in daily conversations. So I wanted to make sure that we had actual research uh, and data to support the argument that the online world and the online sphere was, could actually be an incubator and a catalyst for, for real life violence. And so we found a lot of data, um, especially from, from little NGOs like Moonshot CV, which is a tech-based organization in London, which really links um, those, those, those two things. And, and that's what you see is that those misogynistic hate movements, which can be scattered and fractured geographically. Mm -hmm. uh, so very often for the Insta movement, for example, what we know is there's a lot of people scattered around the US, Canada and Europe. Mm -hmm. But throughout and thanks to technology, they can get together and really create this like echo chamber um, of people that then leads to actual like real life radicalization and violence. Right, exactly. And on that point, Emma, the, the sort of de decentralization aspect you mentioned for both movements, uh, did that decentralization pose any challenges to both of you as you carried out the research? Um, and if not, so were there any other obstacles that came up in your research that either may have distorted results or posed any other challenges to finding the information you both needed? Um, so personally, when I did the research about mm -hmm. uh, the INSA movement in particular, what was interested is that I definitely um, chose certain websites to look into. So I, I during my initial liter literature review, I saw that a couple of websites where the more um, where were the most uh, incels would would gather and congregate. And so I targeted those websites in particular, and there you can find like thousands of different uh, messages and forums and people talking. So that was really that made my research easier in itself. Uh, because again, that was kind of the exemplification of what I just said about the fact that if I had to go around and interview those people in real life, I would probably have had a real problem doing that with COVID as well. But because of the internet and these forums, this was made much easier. Gotcha. Yeah, um, you know, other than our browser histories are probably going to be scrutinized based on the, uh, <laughs> the websites we had to visit. To get some stuff, you know, it, another part, part of what, what I did was actually do some uh, in-depth focus groups with 
women and men in the in the military to really gather how much of a of an issue this is. And I think one of the things that is always a a risk whenever you do this sort of qualitative research is you know how honest people want to really want to be with what's impacted them. Um, you know, one of the most prominent examples is uh, you know has been the Marines United scandal that was about three, a little more than three years ago now, where a, a Facebook group uh, started engaging in revenge porn and beyond just even revenge porn, taking official formal, you know, command photos from military women and turning them into incredibly derogatory memes, um, which you know, spearheaded a, a huge investigation, called in front of Congress, all of that. But a lot of the women involved just don't want to talk about it. You know, that whole notion of being re-traumatized to actually talk through, especially those who were, you know, were part of having their, their command photos. One of the, the women I, I interviewed who was a colonel in command of a, of a battalion, having her command photos taken and used in rape memes and, and you know, discussed about what they're going to do to her and her family. She just didn't want to talk about it very much. And you can't blame these people. You know, like, like it's just not something that is, it's still not that long ago. It's very fresh. It, it forced her to completely change her career trajectory and path as a, as a result of this. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, that they're in dealing with how sensitive of a subject this really is and how deeply it impacts people. And I think that really goes back to Emma's point of, connecting this virtual to real world, you know, things that happen on the virtual world, especially in this space, really negatively impact women. You know, it, it's really hard. It's not something that you can just sort of shrug off and be like, oh, it's just a meme on the internet. You know, like it, it really deeply impacts people. And so one of the things, you know, as a qualitative researcher, there's, there is a line that we really need to walk around being sensitive to what people are actually going to while also getting robust data that's going to help us make really good policy recommendations so that this this doesn't continue to happen and so so navigating that line is is something that's often tough yeah definitely and dr hunter i wanted to sort of bring up the comments you just raised about the interviews you conducted and clearly your remarks show that there is a deep policy relevance uh, to the paper clearly our own our own military personnel are being affected by these issues and Generally, I guess my hope is that the paper does go on to gain traction within the policy community. What sort of um, message would you want to send out uh, to the military, to different security agencies about this issue? Um, I guess not just about recommendations, but I guess uh, on that, just the, what is the right path going forward from here? Yeah, so I think one of, one of the big things that when we look at the military in, in general is, you know, really changing the way we view gender and gender operations. You know, I think it's it's often looked at as something that like, oh, well, it just happens over there. You know, like if we go fight a war, we'll worry about protecting women and girls type thing. Like that's sort of how the, the gender is viewed. It's not really viewed as an internal aspect. And so, I mean, one of the first things is actually meaningfully bringing a gendered perspective into all planning that the military does, because that is going to start to, break down some of these traditional gender norms. You know, to go back to that stickiness, a lot of this problem comes from this belief still that women shouldn't fight, women shouldn't be in the military. These aren't jobs that women should do. And so starting to actually integrate a full gendered perspective into everything is absolutely essential 
for that. So I think it's addressing that side while also, and I'm going to kick it over to Emma to talk about how there needs to be a security sector-wide public health approach that's taken to actually combating online misogyny. That it's not, it, it, we're right now playing whack-a-mole, really. We're trying to treat the symptoms. You know, we're going after individual ISIS cells, or we're trying to take down incels, or we squash these misogynistic websites and groups as they come up. But we need to really ecologically take this comprehensive approach. Yeah, definitely. Emma, did you have anything that you wanted to add to that? Or? Um, yes, I think one of the very interesting impact uh, that we would like, or I would like to have with this research as well, is to kind of broaden the, um, the idea also of what a terrorist can be or look like, um, and what the counter-violent extremism uh, strategies can be and need to be. And for that, I, I wanted to try to look further than the traditional security institutions like the military and try to look into more um, critical approaches, for example, to terrorism. And, and one of those alternatives that has been pushed for the last years by experts or researchers has been the, um, a public health approach. And so a public health approach is, would basically be based on a prevention strategy, uh, mostly, because what we do see today is that those online spaces act as echo chambers and, and those networks and forums where they congregate are places where they find comfort, understanding and reassurance. And, and actually when you go on the website, there was a, a poll, a survey that was done where it was in March, 2020 and they surveyed members of the community and it revealed that 70% of the respondents of those websites claim to suffer from depression, uh, from autism. A lot of people also uh, just pushed each other to kind of uh, have suicidal thoughts and to commit suicide. And I think uh, this is a really important part that should not be neglected when we think about who those people are, who, who is going to commit violence and who is more likely to radicalize as well. And so the public health approach, and you see that with ISIS actually as well, with research has shown that 32% of lone wolves uh, had mental health um, issues in the past or a record of, of uh, mental illnesses. So I think that's, that says a lot as well about the people, the mental health, they're going in. And so a public health approach would be something that an approach that is uh, concerned with the total system and not only the eradication of like a particular aspect of the personality. And so it would merge like psychiatry, psychology, sociology as well. So it would kind of gather, I think, in that sense, more uh, funding uh, generally and have also access to more people, more professionals with different opinions. Um, and because we know that one of the risk factors for radicalization is the lack of access to social and mental health services and the likely overlap between violent radicalization and a history of mental health issues. Um, a prevention strategy would ensure that people identify as having mental health uh, problems could receive the support needed. And it would be also, could also be a diversion program for people with mental health problems who are heading towards criminality, but have not yet committed any crime, such, such has been done and can be seen in juvenile justice, for example. So that's only an example, um, but I think it's, all, it's interesting to look that way as well for, for potential 
um, efficient counter-violent extremism strategies. I see. Yep. And for both of you, I guess, Emma, you brought up the good connection to the public health sort of connection. Uh, based on the paper you both have written so far, is there, are there any other future trajectories or pathways you'd want to explore for research? How, uh, how the current research could be expanded? Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, so I think one of the, the big things, and we touch on it very briefly at, at the end, is really around this notion of ethics and technology as well, and what role, you know, the, what, what security role this really has to play. You know, there, there's been more and more research looking at how technology is adopting the bias of the people who create it. You know, this has become very big in the AI world right now, you know, that, the, the technology develops the human bias of whoever created it because it has to learn from something. Um, there's a lot of debates out there right now on what is the responsibility of the sites that host a lot of this stuff? You know, that, that do they have a responsibility to monitor? When, when does content really cross the line into becoming harmful versus just you have free speech? And so I think taking a security lens to that research is is something that this paper really contributes to because it's it's not an ethics and technology paper but I think there's a lot of room for intersection and, and overlap as we develop more AI as especially our security sector becomes more reliant on technology really what is the responsibility and what is the impact of this isn't if if gender and misogyny isn't taken as a security concern I think that's going to be be very dangerous, you know, right? When we look at, when we think about security concerns and technology, we tend to be more concerned around things like, you know, leaks and the phys physical security of it. And, you know, as we get more automated, are we more susceptible to hacks? Well, I think we need to start to actually really look at how does this deeply rooted gender bias, these super sticky gender norms actually play into some of the security threats that can be created uh, through these systems. Gotcha. Yeah. And Dr. Hunter, could I bring up the point you made about the sort of uh, companies being responsible to sort of regulate and um, manage the data uh, for security purposes? Would it be fair to characterize that as sort of like a parallel to sort of the humanitarian R2P responsibility to protect, but more like a digital version of that? Is that a fair characterization? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that's a really interesting way to, to mm -hmm. think about it. You know, what what is the responsibility to intervene on, like, what is the responsibility of these companies to intervene when we can now show that the activity that's taking place on their platforms is leading to you know both physical attacks against against people but also a inability for us to actually meet the force strength that we need to keep our country secure like what responsibility do they have to intervene and, and step in gotcha yep and uh, emma did you have any sort of um, insights on where you want this paper to go in the future um any expansion of research on that point? Um, I think I definitely want to look more into the intersection of gender and, and radicalization mm -hmm. and how uh, that can also be used in a more like practical approach. So I am very interested in the research of it and that's a, for me a needed component of, of change. But I do believe as well that acting in the, the practice and the whether it is the policy making or the community uh, based action, I do think it's important. And so I want to make sure to like push more into this research and see if there's more to be found to make sure that I can then apply it to, to professional prospects. Definitely, for sure. And um, from 
for understand, is this paper already complete or is it being offered to different outlets yet or uh, what phase is the study? We're, we've got a good draft of it done. We're getting ready to submit it here by uh, the end of December. So gotcha. it, uh, crossing everything, it'll be out published in the world this spring for, for sure. everyone to, to read. For sure, fingers crossed on that, yep. Yeah. Um, and Emma and Dr. Hunter, because I know that you both mentioned that this paper originated in Dr. Hunter, your class at SSP. Um, did you both want to talk about that course a little bit for our SSP listeners to sort of get the feel for what this course is about, um, what they can expect out of it, um, if you want to talk about that? Sure. Emma, you took it. So maybe you should start because you know what it actually, I can tell you what I want it to be, <laughs> but Emma actually experienced it. Yeah, of course. No, no. Um, so yeah, so it's a, a spring class um, and I took last to last uh, spring, so nearly a year ago now. And what I really enjoyed about the class is that basically it really starts from the bottom of what is gender and really like defining gender and then defining gender in with a security lens and in the security world and then evolves from then on every week with um, a lot of readings and, and feminist readings and gender on gender theory, uh, on, on peacemaking as well, uh, the role of, of gender in peacemaking, uh, gender in terrorism, and, and with different aspects of that. And what I really did enjoy as well about this class is the fact that we had a good amount of reading and, and the classes were more seminar-like. I don't know if that was done on purpose, but mm -hmm. that, that's what I really liked about it is that it was really a conversation with different approaches and what really struck me I remember was the first class when we had to give a definition of security uh, our own that we have to make up which had to be quantifiable and measurable and I remember like I still have the document with all the the quotes from my classmates and that was a very interesting way also of being confronted to different perspectives of security based either on your gender on your social background or on your studies and I think that's what I really gained from this class is having so many conversations that you could really understand why security can mean different things to different people. Yeah, so it, so it is gender and war a spring class. If you're out there listening SSP, there's still some spots available. So so uh, sign up. But I think it, it it is intentionally designed as more of a seminar than a lecture focused class, because I think the best way to learn about it is to be a little more immersive and to understand that our our backgrounds, our, our experiences of our gender, and it's intentionally not women in war either, it's gender in war because gender has a spectrum from masculine to feminine and how that is performed depends based on your, your background, you know, ethnically, socially, socioeconomically, religion plays, plays a role into it, where you grew up, all of that. And is really meant to challenge how we tend to study security studies. You know, we, we take this approach to security studies that it's about big wars often, you know, that it's about, you know, state on state or state on non-state actor group wars. But to start to dig in a little bit more, like, well, what, what does security actually mean? Are we just talking about war? Um, because if, if it's just war or not war, you know, there's a lot of not war insecurity that's out there. And a lot of that, the reason that that doesn't get studied as much is that insecurity is very gendered. You know, whether it's not feeling safe walking to, to school, like it doesn't matter if there's not a war going on. If you don't feel comfortable walking to school or work, 
you're not secure. And so taking that, that approach. And so as Emma mentioned, it really starts foundationally with defining what is gender and what is security. And then we move through, how is this tried to be codified? Like how have we tried to create policies to address this more? What works, what doesn't, what happens when things become codified and then move through different aspects of the spectrum of conflict, you know, from terrorism up through state war and look at how gender shapes, how we conduct those things, how we study those things and how we experience and think about those things. So I really encourage students to immerse themselves in it. They get to pick whatever topic they want to pursue throughout this entire semester two for their final paper, because you do a lot better if you have choice and <laughs> we get some great ones like this and get to, to dig in and work together on. For sure. No, thank you for the spiel, guys. And um, to our SSP audience out there, uh, remember gender and war, you're sitting on the ad drop fence right now, unsure of where to go. This may be the class for you, so definitely consider it. Um, Emma and Dr. Hunter, thanks again for coming on Precision Guided Podcast to discuss the research uh, with us here. Uh, we look forward to seeing it in publication and definitely do let the SSP community know uh, once it's out for available for public distribution. Oh, we absolutely will. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you very much for letting us talk. Yep. Well, and to our SSP audience, you're listening to the Precision Guided Podcast, GSSR's official podcast involving all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history related. Stay tuned for more episodes, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>